All right, so here's what we're going to do. There's an ancient anxiety expert. Look, listen, fear and anxiety is not something novel just for this age, even though we call this the age of anxiety and know everybody's more in tune with the pulse of how they're doing and their anxiety levels, right? Uh, fear, remember, the very first recorded destructive emotion, the very first broken emotion ever recorded in the Bible is fear. It's been around a long time. And so there's an ancient expert on anxiety from uh, the first century B.C. He has a really, really bad first name. It's kind of a, it's unfortunate for him. So I'm just going to call him Pub, and we're going to call him Cirrus. And he says this, what we fear comes to pass more speedily than what we hope for. Now let's go to the modern world. Let's go to modern expert, a guy named Dave Barry. And he says this about fear. <laughs> All of us are born with a set of instinctive fears of falling <laughs> of the dark, of lobsters, of falling on lobsters in the dark, right? Of speaking before a rotary club, and then he says this, I love this, and of the words, some assembly required. Man, in our house, that is like, fear goes through everybody in the house but me, because I actually think I can do it, and they know I can't. It's crazy. Now, the list of fears and phobias that are clinically documented by uh, mental health experts I mean, they range from A to Z. They're all over the place. They're the expected kind, right? You know the ones of heights and confined places, right? Flying, that's a big one. I mean, these, like, highly specialized soldiers talk about these fears of flying, which just kind of kills me. And then spiders. I mean, Bell was tortured by all our boys about spiders. And then death. I mean, these are common, everyday ones. But then there's some bizarre ones, like the fear of flutes and frogs. I mean, the fear of frogs is homophobia. The fear of flowers, anthophobia. The fear of books, which I had in high school, but my parents didn't believe it. Then you had dancing. There's a fear of dancing, and that's a Baptist fear, right? There's a fear of anything new. Anything new, neophobia. Anything new, that's a Presbyterian uh, fear. Then there's the fear of teenagers, right, that strikes parents. There's even a fear of sermons. This is, I'm not kidding, this is all the clinically listed fears. I looked them up. Sermons, homic phobia. Dean, Dean, do you have the fear of sermons? He does, I thought so. Okay, so we fear. Fear is a universal human experience. And some things we should fear. You should fear dangerous animals. You should fear dangerous people. You should feel a car that's out, fear a car that's out of control. You should fear body odor. These are things we should fear. But then fear has a really dark element to it too, doesn't it? I mean, fear can absolutely swallow you up. I mean, it, it's described in the Bible like a pit that just sucks you down, that it can shrink your world into such a smallness that you become this own private little prison of you. It can take over your thinking and take over your feeling and take over your experience and take over your relationships and take over everything. Fear can absolutely consume you. So does Jesus say anything about fear? 
course he does. I mean, when God himself comes on earth, is he going to speak to you and me about the oldest, most destructive human emotion there is, fear? Of course he will. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand for the hearing of God's word. Now, what's going to happen is this. You're going to be hearing the ESV. Uh, I was working out the original text, and I'm not saying, I don't care what you think. I'm not trying to, like, impress you that I read out of the original text, but I want you to hear from the original text some slight differences that even though you see it up on the screen, you're going to hear some slightly different things that might actually jar you to see the text in a new way, okay? So let's stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, so the text goes like this, even though you got it up there. Here's how it goes. It says, and uh, he said to them, in that day, when it was evening, let's cross over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took control of him. This is very important. The disciples think they're in control. What are they about ready to realize? And the text, you don't have that out there, does it? Let's see. They took him. Yeah, that just, they took him. The word actually means they took control of him. So they took control of him as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. And a storm, great windstorm, became. And the waves laid hands into the boat so that already now it was filling. And he was in the stern, which is the back of the boat, upon a pillow, sleeping. And they raised him up. I mean, I am not making this up. The disciples come in and they're, they're raising Jesus up, like from the dead. And said to him, saying, Teacher, is it not a care to you that we're perishing? And he woke up. And he rebuked the great storm and said to the sea quiet be calm and stay calm and the great storm rested and it became a great calm and he said to them why are you afraid do you still not have faith and they overfeared with a great fear and they said to one another who is this that even the, the great storm and the sea obey him? Fantastic text. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Here we go. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you shine on the page? We grant that you would speak, fulfill your words in our ears as we looked at last week. So give and grant what you say here. Cause us to experience you, Jesus, in this text. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all. So there's a textual train here. Let's get the textual train down, shall we? Here it is. There's a logic to fear. This is the first thing we're going to see from this text. There's a logic to fear. In other words, fear has its reasons. Fear is completely overwhelming. Fear is completely swallows us up, but it has its reasons, and we're going to find the reasons in the text. We're also going to look at the arch enemy of fear. In other words, fear has its fears. Fear actually fears something. 
there's a power in this text that fears like, oh no, it's coming. And that arch enemy of fear is our only hope against fear. Are you with me? So, the logic of fear, fear has its reasons. The arch enemy of fear, fear has its own fears. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Okay, so fear has its own reasons. Let's look at the, let's look at the logic of it. I want you to think of the Sea of Galilee, all right? The Sea of Galilee sits in a bowl. Do you got it? Now, it sits in a bowl. So let's take this bowl, go over here. You've got the western side, and you've got the eastern side. Got it? Now, it sits in this bowl, which is 700 feet below sea level. On the western side, there are gentle flowing hills. And the hills are so gentle and flowing that they form natural amphitheaters, and that's where Jesus taught all the time because he could project his voice. It was a natural way to communicate. So he taught the parables. When it says the crowds, that's where he was teaching all the time. Now, he's going to get in a boat. They start on the western side. They're going to go to the eastern side. Now, the western side is the Israeli side. The eastern side is the Gentile side. On the Gentile side, on the eastern side, it's straight drops of just huge, sharp cliffs that run straight to the sea. There's no place to actually dock boats. You have to, you have to know where they are, and every fisherman knew where the waves to dock your boat on the eastern side was. Now, you got it? Now, picture Mount Hermon sits here on the eastern side, and this Mount Hermon is 9,200 feet tall. <laughs> okay, so Pike's Peak is 14,000 feet. So let's go, what, a mere 300, 400 feet higher? There's nowhere on the planet that you had this drastic transition from height to sea level, from 9,200 feet to 700 feet below sea level. Right there in one drastic place. So what does this mean? You know what this means? Well, of course you know what this means. You have cold air come roaring over Mount Hermon, hitting the warm air, <laughs> right? of the Sea of Galilee. And when that happens, you have regular highlights on the Weather Channel. And they mostly happen at night, at evening. The fishermen, Galilean fishermen today, call this wind and call these storms the Arabic word Shakira. What do you think that is? The shark. Because it will bite your... That's what they say, so don't blame me and send me an email. So what time of day is it? Verse 35. Evening. Don't you love the text, man? Are you entering the world of this text? It's evening, man, and the Sharkey is coming over the top of Mount Hermon, and it's hitting, and it's forming. Verse 37, what says a great windstorm? It literally is saying a great storm of wind. This is a hurricane. Then you go down to verse 37, and it gives you another picture of terror where it's saying the waves were breaking into the boat in the ESV, and I read to you the original language. It says that hands, the waves were laying hands on the boat and pulling it into the deep. Now you got to know, and i got to know, the ancient world, they had a certain view of the sea, and they had a certain view of the storms. This is where the Kraken lived. This is where the Leviathan lived. This is where all the demonic forces of the ancient world lived in the sea. The sea was never a good place. The sea was the watery grave. The sea was the realm of the dead. The sea is where 
where spiritual beings and spiritual forces that cannot be explained live. So all of this would scare anybody, would it not? And that's the point of the text. It's outlandishly scary. Of course this text is scary. And of course it's trying to show too that fear is just absolutely unmanageable. You can't control fear. Fear is uncomfortable. It's overwhelming. Fear messes with your mind. It creates a psychological storm in you. When you experience fear, you experience a psychological storm. Your thoughts are turned into a storm. Your feelings are turned into a storm. Your complete experience is storming. Your mind is messed up. I had to get an MRI this week, or what was it, last week? Anybody ever had an MRI? There's some people in the first, okay. All right, so you know, you can empathize and you, we can feel each other's pain here, right? Uh, I've got old injuries, football, wrestling, and I probably added some new ones. MMA probably didn't help, and all the reading I do. So anyhow, beside the point, I got this thing looked at. I needed to get it looked at. So here's what they do. They immobilize you, and they put you on this, this thin, like, bed and depending on your frame of mind which my frame of mind was that just looks like a coffin to me because the sides come up you know what I mean so you're pinned in you got the sides coming up and then they come in and they put this helmet thing on your head with this so my head's completely immobilized and this helmet thing goes across me and that was fun and then you know the really fun started is that all of a sudden they insert you into the center of the earth this this tube you're inserted into this tube and as the I'm going in, and I'm clearing the top of this tube like my hands are barely making it. I'm clearing it, and here's the top right across here. And I'm like, oh, my. I am in a tomb. And then when they turn it on and start taking pictures, I think some dude was standing outside with a, a sledgehammer and just started wailing on the machine. It's the loudest machine I have ever heard in my life. I mean, bang, bang, bang. That's why they gave me the earplugs. I didn't know reason. Why are you giving me earplugs? Well, that's why you're giving me earplugs. Okay, so I had to be in there for 45 minutes. After what felt like three days in the tomb, this voice comes in. <coughs> Jeff. Uh, God? I mean, it was like, what's happening? This voice comes in and he goes, all right, hold your breath for the next 20 seconds. I did it. Okay, another 20 seconds. No problem. Another 20 seconds. No problem. I'm like, I got it. No problem. And then he says, now, you cannot swallow for the next eight minutes. And all of a sudden, I think from every pore in my body, saliva just started pouring into my mouth. <laughs> I mean, everywhere. It was coming in everywhere. I was like, and I started thinking, I'm going to be the first person in the history of the world who drowns of his own spit in the MRI machine. I mean, it was horrible. And all of a sudden, my pulse starts racing. My body starts getting hot. All I wanted to do was swallow. And I got out and I told him at the end of that thing, I said, dude, don't, don't tell somebody they can't swallow for eight minutes. Say something else. I mean, just let it go. I don't know what the answer is, but that's not the answer. So fear not only messes with your mind, but fear also messes with your body. What do I mean by that? Here's what happens. Your brain and your body, 
They're like a scanner, and they're scanning your mind, and they're scanning the emotions, and they're going, hey, dude, how are we doing? How are we doing today? Is everything okay in there? And your mind or your heart says, no, we're freaking out. The sky is falling, and the body and the brain go, what? The sky is falling. We're freaking out. Oh, no, and then what happens? Your body starts freaking out. See how this works together? Here's the point. Even though fear is overwhelming in your mind, and in your heart, and even though it's overwhelming in your body, there's a logic to it. Fear has its reason. How do we know this? Because Jesus says, why are you so afraid? That wasn't because Jesus didn't know what was going on. It was because Jesus cared so much about them, he wanted to help them, and he wanted to set them free, and he wanted them to do what I want you to have indelibly imprinted in your mind for the rest of your life. When you have overwhelming emotions going on with you, and I don't care what it is, if it's anger, or if it's fear, whatever your destructive, overwhelming, painful, uncomfortable emotion is, I want you to think of that emotion, a mega emotion, I want you to Think of it like a weed, and you grab the weed and pull it up to find the roots because there's a logic, there's a reason for the weed. And Jesus is doing that in this text. He's saying, why are you so afraid? He's making them grab the weed of their fear and their anxiety and find its logic, find its reason, find its root. So contrary to what most experts do today in treating anxiety or treating fear, they only treat the symptoms. Here, take this pill. Here, uh, do this. Here, you know, hold your breath for 20 seconds. Here, here, try this. Try this meditation. Try this mindfulness. Try this, try that, try this, try that. And Jesus treats the root. Why are you so afraid? Why are they so afraid? They're so afraid for the reason you and I are so afraid. <laughs> I mean, we fear what we cannot control. It was a great signal at the beginning of the text when the text said they took control of him in the boat. Oh, you've got God in control, right? And we're signaled that there is this sense in which everybody kind of knows that, right? When you're out of control, when you sense you're out of control, that's when the anxiety starts coming in. But I want us to go a little deeper than that because that is going to one of the roots, but it's not going to the deepest root. The issue is, why do you need to be in control of whatever it is you need to be in control of? Now we're getting to the root, right? And the answer is, whatever we believe whatever we think we need, whatever we believe, I must have this to be okay, you will try to control it. I must have human approval, so you will do whatever you can to control it. You'll manage your life so that people like you. You'll manage your life so that you get human approval. I must have money for security in my life, so you will do whatever you can to secure money. You might go illegal means. You might go become a, you might loot. You might do all kinds of things. Well, I must have what? I don't know. 
pick your I must have or I need it, whatever that is, whatever that is for you, you must have it, you must need it, you will try to control it. And when your control is threatened, when this is threatened, what you need and what you must have, and when it's threatened because you're not in control of it, fear, anxiety. What is everybody afraid of right now in our country? I think a lot of people are afraid. I think, I think a lot of people need and a lot of people want to be okay, power. And I don't mean necessarily in a bad way. I'm just saying personal power, a sense of they can control their life. If, they, if you want power, you're going to try to control power. If you need discipline to be okay in your life, you're going to control your day and make it very disciplined. Do you see how this works? So what if personal power and personal certainty is going amok right now? What if political power and political certainty is going amok right now? What would that look like? Well, control and fear would look like being a jerk on social media. If your personal power is what you need and what you must have, or you need human approval, you must have, you're going to be a jerk. And boy, we see that. We will be mean. If control and fear looks like being mean, it means being violent. It means being hateful. It means being a racist. It means being lawless. Justice has left the building, and I don't, I don't, I don't care what you say. If you're being mean and you're being a jerk and you think you're saying you're for justice, you're not for justice. It left the building. If you're demonizing, I mean, what does control and fear look like when you need power? You must have power personally, politically. I think it looks like demonizing other people, dehumanizing other people. Their views, their ideologies, uh, their race, their privilege, the police. Justice has left the building, no matter what you say. If you divinize yourself, I mean, if you need power and certainty for yourself and your political views or whatever it is, you will divinize yourself. You know what that means? You will absolutize yourself. You will think that you are a blues brother. You're on a mission from God. And you know what that mission is, and you're righteous, and your views are righteous. You'll do that with your life experience, you'll do that with your race, you'll do that with your preferences, you'll do that with your desires, you'll do that with your views. Justice has left the building no matter what you say. I know this is very uncomfortable, but I got I to gotta do it. Shutting down dialogue. Um, where there's need of debate, justice has left the building. Control and fear looks like the inability to seek truth and extend grace. The complete inability to actually pursue truth and extend grace to everyone, right? Here's another thing. We, when we're in control and fear, it has this inability to discern the difference between God's moral law. You know what his moral law is? That lays out what is justice and what life is. These things are embedded into the spiritual fabric of the universe and they're embedded into the spiritual fabric of being a human being, the moral law. We can't discern the difference between that 
in your own stupid, I shouldn't say that, your own preferences, your own views, cultural views, preferences, your own need for human approval, right? This stuff is not this, that all of a sudden we can't discern the difference anymore. Control and fear looks like the inability to listen and love. You can't empathize with people. You can't, you can't listen and empathize. So here's the deal. When you seek truth and grace, you're a warrior because you aren't tied down by all the stereotypes and all the dividing lines. You look completely different. You're a free person because you are pursuing truth and grace and you want God to be glorified and Jesus to be extended and you know he's the only hope. So you can go over here and you can say to the African-American community and our African-American brothers and sisters and say, that's horrible. Because it is. And then you can go over here and you can see what's happening with the riots and stuff and saying, that's horrible. Because it is. And you can go over here and see countless contrary to grace views that are being espoused like crazy and say, that's destructive. That will not save you because that's true. And you can go down the line and cross all these political lines, all these political barriers with about 10 things where nobody else can because they can only stay stuck in their silos and demonize everybody else and divinize themselves. Do you want to be a warrior in a day like today? Then you will pursue truth and grace. Okay, um, the logic of fear is this. We need, we must have something to be okay. Therefore, if I got to have it, I got to control it. So a storm comes in. And it shakes up what I need or I must have. And I realize I'm not in control. Anxiety. Fear. See how this works? So what hope is there for fearful people like you and me? <laughs> the hope is the arch enemy of fear. Fear looking over its shoulder, man, all the time is like, no, it's coming. He's coming. Verse 40, Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Faith wrecks fear. Faith is more powerful than fear. Fear fears faith. So what is faith? We better nail this down. If faith is so powerful that it can actually end storms and it's the arch enemy of fear and it might be the answer to what's going on in our culture and in the world today, we better understand what faith is. So what is it? Look at verse 38. 
Verse 38 are the first recorded words of the disciples to Jesus. So the disciples are going to speak for the first time. They're going to say something to Jesus. So these are big words, right? These are loaded words. Can you imagine? These are the first words Mark's saying. Here's the first words that the disciples are actually going to speak to Jesus. And here it is. Are you ready? So what they're saying, whatever they're going to say, they're actually going to tell you what faith is. They might not give it to you in a positive way because usually the disciples are always a negative example of what's not true. So this is going to tell you what faith is from the back way, all right? So they say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, you need to know this is not them waking up. I mean, imagine you've got hands pulling you down into the deep. You've got a hurricane blowing all over you. They're not going up to Jesus and saying, hey, your alarm went off. You're sleeping through it. No, can you imagine? These are, these are sailors. They've got some really fine language that they've developed over the years. I mean, can you imagine it's like, wake up. Do you not, I mean, do you not care that we're dying? First, they have to be heard over the wind. I mean, it's total chaos, y'all. But do you hear what they're asking? Do you not care? Jesus goes, do I not care? Do I not care? Quiet. Be still. Stay still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. What is faith? Faith is resting in the great care of Jesus. Faith is resting in the great calm of Jesus. That's faith. Faith has nothing to do with you and anything about you. Faith is a nothing. It's an emptiness that embraces someone else and only that person. So are you resting in the great care and great calm of Jesus while you struggle with your place in life? If you're a teenager, I know you're struggling with your place in life. If you're a 20-something that just got out of college and you're wondering, what am I coming into workforce-wise right now? Everything's shut down. You're struggling with your place in life. You, you're 40-something and you're wondering, what was my life and what is my life? You're struggling with your place in life. Are you resting in the great care and great calm of Jesus amidst your fear of COVID-19? Are we? Are you resting in the great care and great calm of Jesus while you struggle in your marriage? Are you resting in the great care and great calm of Jesus amidst the ever-growing fear, personal Racial, relational, national, political, ideological, that's just like a wildfire right now. For those of you that are not resting well, in other words, you're like, oh gosh, I am completely swallowed up by fear. I'm the most anxious person I know. Uh, I have little to no faith. I want you to look at verse 37 and 38 if this is you. 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to laugh. What? What's happening there? You know what's happening there? The perfect human being is completely resting in God amidst the storm. The perfect human being is having perfect faith in God amidst the storm. And he's not doing this for himself. He's doing this for you. And for me. Because we have no faith. We don't rest in God. So he did for you. And you rest in that. You rest in one who was perfectly faithful, who always trusted God, who completely rested in God so much that amidst the biggest storm to ever hit that world, he's asleep on a cushion for you. For you. Are you still scared? disciples were verse 41 and they were filled with great fear and they said to one another who the who who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him who then is this you know what mark wants you to know (laughs) the disciples have no clue who he is 11 times in this text jesus's personal name is never mentioned You know how he's referred to? Third person, he or him, 11 times he, 11 times him. Nobody knows who he is. And Mark wants you to know that nobody knows who he is. He is the stranger in the storm. Nobody knows. But they should. Because they've heard this story before. They're good Jewish boys. They've been catechized. They've memorized the whole Bible. I want you to look at verse 41 where the text literally says they were over afraid with great fear. This is a direct quote. It's such it's in the Hebrew. It's an infinitive absolute. You don't know what that means. You don't need to know what that means. But this is so intentional because this is a direct quote from the story of Jonah. Both Jonah and Jesus are prophets that are going to the irreligious people, the skeptical people, the people that don't believe in God, the Gentiles. Remember, Jonah was going to Nineveh, to the Assyrians. Remember what Jesus is doing? He's leaving the, le- the west side, the, the believing church side, and he's going to the unchurched, irreligious Gentile side. Both Jesus and Jonah's journey is threatened by a massive storm. Both Jonah and Jesus sleep during the massive storm. Both Jonah and Jesus are woke up by a shocked crew in the massive storm. And both Jonah and Jesus stop the massive storm. And when they do, both crews freak out and fear God even more. Except there's one difference between these two, isn't there? Right? There's a difference between Jonah and Jesus. What's the difference? (laughs) Jonah is the reluctant Savior. Jonah's like, oh, gosh, 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 gosh. God is getting me. 
He's the reluctant one to sacrifice himself on behalf of others. Ah. Dudes, I know we've tried everything. You got to throw me over. I don't see any other way of us getting out of this thing. But Jesus, the relentless Savior, he's so filled with great care for you, he throws himself overboard at the cross for you. He is so himself the great calm who completes everything. And he says to the storm of sin and he says to the storm of death and he says to the storm of everything you ultimately fear he ends it quiet rest in that rest in the great calm of Jesus rest in the great care of Jesus for you And you'll experience the great calm amidst the storm. Even when your feelings and thoughts still aren't there. Hard to explain? You're going to have to trust me on that one. Amen. Uh, we need to pray.